Well, beloved of God, we're going to finish up this series in Ephesians on redemptive relationships. And today we're going to be looking at redemptive families. And as we approach the nature of families, we all have a slightly different family story. Um, we're all shaped differently by the way we were raised in our family of origins. And then where we find ourselves today as adults and family relationships, we have variations just even in this room. And so the classic family structure in America isn't what it used to be, where everybody kind of grew up on a street and there was a mom and there was a dad and they went to church on Sunday and you had your friends and your brothers and sisters. Uh, families today are very different. And so we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how he is speaking to families in a Greek world, a Roman world, and a Jewish world. And so there's some similarities, there's some differences. But hopefully today as we take a look at God's Word, we'll see how God has a plan for the family. And despite all of the tears and fractures, the discord that we see, we all have a sense of what it ought to be, what it should be. And that's what Paul puts forward here. And he does so um, because of the gospel. Remember, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 was all in the indicative. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The indicative meaning, this is what God has done for you. He predestined you unto salvation. You were once children of wrath, but he has saved you by his grace through the work of Christ at Calvary. You are saved by grace alone, and you are now his workmanship, made to do his good works. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul turns the verb tends into the imperative, meaning because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for you, here's how you should live in relationships. So as we think about and reflect on family, it's different for all of us. Now, I put these up here as TV shows from the past. And every one of us in this room has watched TV in the last 70 years. And we've watched some sort of show about the family. And it has shaped your feelings and thoughts about the family. Now, when I was growing up, I loved the Brady Bunch. This is a story of a man named Brady, right? And, 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 and that reflected some of the things going on, at least in California in the early 70s, of, 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 of kids who might lose a parent and they may have a blended family. That was like a big thing in the United States back then to have a TV show about a, a family where the mom and dad were either on their, where they were on their second marriage. And so you see as things progress in our nation over the last 70 years, we've left the 1950s when father knew best to things like the modern family, which I've never watched because it's completely dysfunctional. Okay, that's why I won't watch it. I've never watched The Simpsons because it's too sarcastic. I know lots of you like it, but I just can't do that kind of sarcasm in the family because I, I don't like what it will produce in me. I'm already sarcastic enough. <laughs> oh, seriously. And so, so we've been formed by this, and it will bleed into how we go about our own family. So one of the things that we've done is, is to love you well and to pastor you well. There are some books out there. Here's some other books. The middle one they're growing with is out there on the table the um, purchasing of the books have been really phenomenal over the last uh, two weeks, and we do this because we love you. We want you to grow in your knowledge of these matters. 
And so the Growing With book is really wonderful if your kids are starting to approach like eight or 12 years of age. And even for those of us who um, our kids are already grown, um, you still have to change your parenting style. And so it talks about how you kind of have to change how you parent. And so it's a good book. But these are some other ones that I highly recommend. Remember, our key verse here is for this whole series is be imitators of God. That's the imperative. God's, that's Paul telling us what to do. Be imitators of God. Why? Because you are dearly loved children. So when we look at this text, we have to think through what it means to be a parent and a child, knowing that we are dearly loved by the Father in heaven. So that we relate to other people just like Christ did. This is the gospel. How did Christ live and how did he relate to people? He did so by sacrificing himself to glorify and honor the Father. So we take this redemptive approach in all of our relationships, that we enter into relationships just like Jesus did. But in order to do so, we ourselves must be believing the gospel for ourselves. What, what will make you a good father or a good mother is if you are appropriating the grace of Jesus for yourself, that you are believing in him, and that will allow you to parent your children well. And so let's remember this, that this is a great quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, great English um, preacher from the last century. He says, we have to learn to appropriate fa faith and the fact that God is our father. That's our starting point in our families, is understanding that we have a good, good Father. He is always caring for us. He's always loving us. He so loved us that he sent his only begotten Son into the world and to the cross to die for our sins. That is our relationship to God, and the moment we realize it, it transforms everything. So if you're coming to this text today that we're going to take a look at thinking, I just need to good, be a good parent, and I need some good parenting techniques and tips, and I just need to take a course on it, you're missing the point. The point is, if you want to be a great parent, allow the Father in heaven to be your good, good Father, and take stock of that, and worship him for that, and he will then lead you in your family. So let's take a look at the text that we have before you. Just a reminder to you, uh, we do have these booklets. These booklets are also part of the way that we want to pastor and care for you, that you're able to walk along with the sermons and have notes and be able to refer back to things. So let's hear the word of God together. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Shall we pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, you inspired the apostle to write these words so many years ago and they still ring true today. And these words here you gave to Moses at Mount Sinai 3,500 years ago. This is your wish and your desire, how to live out the implications of the fifth commandment through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us today, dear Lord, to appropriate this to our life and to our families so that our families will reflect you, will reflect your gospel and that we will practice the gospel together in our families. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So notice what Paul is doing here. He's having 
a very logical progression here. Remember what we just studied? Yeah, it was two weeks ago, but we were talking about marriage, and Paul concludes chapter 5 saying the whole relationship of the husband and wife to each other is a mystery that reflects the relationship of the believer to the Lord. And so he's talking about marriage. And then as soon as he's done talking about this love relationship between the man and the woman, he says, children, right? You would think maybe as he's going to transition to parenting roles, he would now say, okay, parents, you need to really be good to your kids. No, he goes, he addresses the children first. Why is that? Well, a couple reasons. Um, He wants to address the fruit of the love between, from the parents, right? What happens when a husband and wife get together? Nine months later, there's a kid. So he's just making this logical progression. He's also telling us that there's original sin here, right? When you look at the fifth commandment here, it's honor your father and your mother, meaning kids, you're sinners. You have original sin. What happened to that very first couple? They had a little, two little boys. Their name was Cain and Abel, and they, their parents were created in perfection. What happened? Sin crept in, and Cain, the older brother, killed his younger brother, Abel. Okay? We see right from the very beginning that the family dynamic is permeated by sin. And so he's getting to this need that we have immediately for the gospel. Sin is in our families. And so he gave us his law so that we would govern our life together according to his word and to his grace. Now, what we see here is four laws in place. The first one's divine law because he says, for this is right. Why is it right? It's from the Lord. So there's a divine law over how the family is to operate. Second, there's natural law. The parents brought you into this world. And as some dads will say to their children, and I can take you out. Right? So, but that's just natural law, right? That, that, they're, they're, that parents procreate and they produce children and the children look like them and act like them. We call my oldest son Mini-Me because he looks so much like me and acts so much like me. Okay, so we see that family resemblance, but it's natural. We also have this command here because of the law of hard knocks. Kids, your parents have lived life. Matter of fact, they started praying for you when you were in the womb. They've been praying for your future, that you would be successful. They've spent money on you to go to school and to have a car and to have clothes. They're highly invested in you. Why? So that you won't have to experience the pains that that, that their parents did. So, kids, honor thy mother and thy father. Because they don't want you to suffer the hard knocks in this life that they did. And then there's a spiritual law here. The spiritual law is when we learn to obey our parents, we are learning now how to obey the Lord. Okay? It is spiritual training. If you can't obey and honor your dad and your mom, you probably aren't going to be very good at honoring and obeying your heavenly father. And that's why this is a command that comes with a blessing. Right? 
There's an experiential blessing. There's inheritance. You know, I, you know, we all have different family dynamics. I was adopted. So Mac and Jenny Munzinger, they adopted me when I was six days old. They died. Dad in 91, mom in 2003. Everything they had, guess who got it? Me. Okay? There, 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 there's a temporal blessing in that. Okay? That's just one way. You can see this family here. They're in Hawaii. Okay? Parents and grandparents can be really good kids. They'll take you to Hawaii. Sounds like a good way to spend a week to me. But my point is, there, there, there's blessings for you. Honor your mother and your father. Okay? This is what it's getting at. And so you see here what Joseph says to his sons. This is the end of what he says. He says, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Most likely, he, that's kind of him referencing the father in heaven. All right? That's a spiritual blessing. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, who's going to take over the family now, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. You see, there is this sense of legacy. And fathers, we must have this sense of legacy that we want our kids to walk with Jesus. We want them to walk with their father in heaven. And parents, that is your main parenting goal, that you hand your kids over to the Father in heaven. The older they get, the less your influence is, the more they should be influenced by the Lord Jesus and by their Father in heaven, because he is their true Father. And once you kind of get that perspective, it really begins to change how you parent and love your kids. Second point here that he brings in, fathers, do now he gets to the parents, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Um, I know exactly how to exasperate my children. I am a good student of it. I love to tease people. And so I have to constantly be given restraint by my wife. Now, fortunately, my kids are 18 to 25. They can, they can send it right back at me, and it's awesome. It's awesome to have your kids make fun of you because it means they have an active mind. They see your faults. So it's not a bad thing. But we don't want to be exasperating our children here. Here's what happens when you have bad parents. Did you know that the greatest atheists in the world all had bad dads? They were either absent or they died or they were abusive. So here's what I, you, you want a little spiritual evangelical apologetic? When you meet someone who says, I'm an atheist, your next question isn't to try and debate them. Your next question is, tell me about your father. Trust me, I've done this with people. You're, you're, you're putting it right on it. People who have bad fathers project that onto their heavenly father. And so their real anger is against God, the father, that they had a bad earthly father. And that's where you do your evangelism. So you see how it doesn't go well for kids that don't have good fathers. These are alarming statistics. The world needs families where mom and dad stick together, mom and dad love each other, and they raise their kids in the Lord. We would virtually have no social problems in this country if moms and dads would just love each other, stay married, and love their kids. So what about the moms? You get the day off. 
Hooray. Every mom I know is just looking for a day off. Well, here, here, we've already discussed this, but the, the husband's the head of the household because he came first in the order of creation. Father's role looms large, okay? Just, just no matter who you are, your father, some of you are 60 years old and you're still upset about something that happened that your father did. I remember having a conversation with my Uncle Tom, and he was in his 70s, and he started crying to me that his dad, my grandfather, John, never told him he loved him. He just was crying in his 70s. And this guy was a lawyer for the State Department. I love my Uncle Tom, but he still hasn't gotten over the, he still hadn't gotten over the wounds of his own father, okay? You need the gospel to heal you of these things. So the father's role looms large. There's also the assumption here that moms are going to nurture and love. Now, moms, you got to watch it because we have this, these things today called helicopter moms and tiger moms. And the helicopter moms are like all over their kids. And just let you know, those kids turn out to be spoiled brats when you just like do everything for them. And then the tiger moms are, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, and they're pushing their kids so hard. They do the homework for the kids. You have to have straight A's. The kids never breathe. The kids then don't have a soul. And they're under a constant strain of performance. I only value if I perform. Neither one of those things are good. Both of those things are operating because the mother doesn't feel like there's a father there to help her parent the kids. So fathers require the greatest admonishment here because they have the tendency towards the greatest parental irresponsibility. That's why Paul is picking on the fathers here. And dads, it's never too late. It's never too late in Christ to be a good dad. If you've blown it, repent to the Lord and go to your kids immediately. I've blown it as a dad. How can I make it right? And if they have to unload on you, you take it. Because soul care is required. Paul's saying here, be neither harsh nor absent nor discourage your kids. There was a book written several years ago, and it was just titled, Be There. Your kids just sometimes want you to be there. Um, Colossians 3, a lot of the same sort of things come out, but, God, but Paul says here, don't discourage your children. Positive encouragement is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to anybody, especially your kids. People respond much better to positive encouragement than they do to negative. Remember when you're parenting, the, 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 your child's soul is what's at stake. Not whether or not they got an A or a B on a test or they hit the home run or struck out. Their soul. Okay, son, you struck out. How are you feeling about that? What can we do different next time? Let's not give up baseball just because you struck out once or even 10 times, right? You care for the person's soul. Why? Because Jesus Christ cares for your soul. He sacrificially loved you and died for you. He ministers to you. He dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. God is concerned about your soul, not your performance. So how do you be a redemptive agent? You care for other people's souls. Now, just to help you out here, these are the three big questions that 12 to 22-year-olds are asking. We have more 12 to 22-year-olds in counseling than ever before. They're full of anxiety, they're full of depression, 
and they're taking all kinds of medications. The pharmaceutical companies are getting rich. We need to love our children. We need to love our grandchildren. They're asking questions like, who am I? Where do I fit? What difference can I make? Now, during this age range of 12 to 22, they can't vocalize these. They just feel it, okay? And you see Bonhoeffer's quote there that to really love someone is to listen to them, right? God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives us his word, but he also lends us his ear. Fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, lend your children and grandchildren your ear. It's always surprising that if you just ask people a few questions, it's shocking what they'll tell you if you just listen. And when you do that, the other person feels loved, and you're able to empathize with them, and you're able to know where their heart is. So if you really want to love your family, ask them nice questions, pertinent questions, and then listen. It's a great way to love people in the gospel. So he, he tells us here, you got to do two things. You got to train them and you got to instruct them. What does he mean by that? Training them in the Christian life and in the gospel, meaning this, husbands and wives, when you have a spat, do you resolve it? Or do they just see mom getting mad at dad, dad escalating, getting more angry, and mom stonewalling and walking out the door and going into the other room? Is that what your kids see? Are you modeling the gospel? No, you need to model the gospel. And you need to do that even after they've grown. Your kids need to know, are you going to model the gospel? Is there going to, are, are we able to confess our sins in this family? Are we able to forgive each other? Are we going to love each other unconditionally? If I crash the car, am I going to be teased about it for two years? Only if it was a really ridiculous accident, then it's fair game. But you get the point here. These things have their way of undermining how we're training our children and also bringing them to church on Sunday, having a devotional, having one of the kids pray at the dinner table, sharing what's going on in your life and sharing what's going on in your spiritual life. What's God teaching you? Share that with your kids, even if it's just a short little, hey, here's something that God's doing in my life this week while you're maybe riding down the car. What's something that God's teaching you? I mean, it's having questions like that. That's training your child. And of course, the instruction is in the word. It's in ethics. They need to see that you live your life as a righteous person, that you're not cheating others, you're not lying, you're not stealing, like we talked about back in um, Ephesians chapter 4. Also, that you have an emotional IQ. Jana and I like to say that we have been, one of our goals for our two sons is to raise emotionally available men. Amen, sisters? Right? Isn't that a good goal? To raise young men who are going to be emotionally available. They actually can feel things. They can sympathize for others. That they also are instructed on how to have a devotional life. And then they see you and how to love others. This is how we train them. Now remember, there's stages to this. You can't just parent your kid the same way for 50 years of their life. Zero to five, you're the nurse, you're the king, you're the commander. Then six to 12, you gotta be kind of a coach and a trainer. And then when they get into teenage years, you just pray. You're gonna lose them for a little while, but you're a counselor, you're an advisor to them. 
And then when they get out of the house, you become their consultant and your friend. That's how you know if, you're, if, you're, if your adult kids are like friends with you and you have like a friend-type relationship, well done. Well done. If, they're not, if you don't feel like you have this friend relationship with your adult kids, you've got something to work on with them. You need to pursue them. Hebrews 12 says, Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us. You have to accept God's forgiveness for where you failed in parenting your kids too, right? Jan and I have a proverbial counseling jar, and so we're always putting money in it because we know that when our kids grow up, they're going to blame us for a lot of things, and so we'll, we'll help pay for the counseling, right? At least we're prepared for it. Okay, household respect. See, in that day, it wasn't just this nice little neat nuclear family. You would have aunts and uncles. You might have the grandparents living there. You might have servants. Okay, you might have servants who work in the house. You might have servants that work outside the house. The household was kind of an economic unit, much different than today because of industrialization. Life has really changed for, for humanity. So here's what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. There are some beautiful lessons for life here. See the gospel in this, right? In some ways, this comes out as law, obey, do what's right. That's law. But with sincerity of heart, Right? How, how do you have a sincere heart? Only a heart that's been changed by the gospel. A heart that has grace. Okay? Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you. Okay? What he's saying is be a person of character. And this just isn't true of slaves. Don't be sitting there going, Woo! Glad I'm not a slave because I can do whatever I want when people aren't watching. No, that would be bad interpretation of the text. This is the best definition of character I've ever come across. A godly or a good character is that you do what's right even when no one is looking. And the reason for that is there is somebody looking. In everything that you do, there is somebody looking, and he is your Father in heaven. The Reformers called it Coram Deo. We live our life before the face of God. And so when you live your life that way, your work gets recognized because when the hard times come in the workplace and you have been faithful and diligent even when nobody's working, your work product shows up when other people's don't because they weren't doing what was right when nobody was looking. And so let's just talk about the whole slave thing here. By age 30, most slaves in the Roman world were free. It was different than the American experience. And what Paul is more concerned about is not your station in life, but your attitude. Do all things as unto the Lord. Your attitude, your motives, your perspective, your goals. Can you say that's true for you? That everything that you're doing, you're doing as unto the Lord. And so this, this changes the dynamic of life. No matter where you find yourself, whether you're a student in college or in high school, or whether you're retired, do everything as unto the Lord. You have an audience of one. 
Allow the gospel of the Lord Jesus to propel you that you're in a personal relationship with your Father in heaven and with the Lord Jesus. And so what you do, he has ordained for you to do this. So do it to him. And just realize that your boss is just a conduit of what God wants you to do. And so we see here these subordinate relationships. So whoever your boss might be or whoever your employees may be, whoever may be in your household, remember that your relationship with them is vital because the gospel always runs on the pathway of relationships. You see how it happens with the disciples, right? They, they know each other. They're bringing their friends to Christ. And so you have to look at all the relationships in your life and say, somehow my relationships with these people is what's going to allow the gospel to run in my life, right? And you need to have the attitude that the gospel bears on every aspect of your life. There is nothing in your life that isn't important to the Lord and that he somehow doesn't want to change and transform for his glory. So beautiful text right here. Yeah, serve is repeated here, typo. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are free or slave. Look, this is absolutely beautiful here. Serve with your whole heart because you're serving the Lord. You're living quorum Deo. You're not just serving your boss. You're not just serving your mom or your dad. You're serving the Lord in whatever you're being asked to do in this life. This is highly transformative. I love this quote by John Stott. The housewife is to cook a meal. Now, he was writing this 40 years ago, so don't get upset. Cook a meal as if Jesus were to eat it or clean the house as if he was a guest. Teachers are to educate, doctors and nurses treat, waiters serve, accountants audit, and carpenters build as if Christ was their client. Is that your attitude in all of your work and all of your doing? If it is, you will see, you'll see how God transforms your life. So this is, a, this is called just having a gospel perspective for life. Last, masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Know that he, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. You don't look down on other people, period. It doesn't matter if they're your server at the restaurant. So today I would tell you to go to Gringo's. My son will wait on you, and he will tell me that all of the waiters in Gringo's know that the worst day to work is after church on Sunday because Christians are the worst tippers. Right? They'll order $20 worth of sodas, eight so sodas at $2.50. I say order water if you can't afford it and then give, give the waiter the $20 tip, write a note, say, you're, you're great, we'd love to have you come to church with us. But we need to start changing the perspective and attitudes of people. Why do we not tip properly after we go to church on Sunday? Because we're looking down on those people. We don't value them. That's not the gospel, folks. It's not a good reflection. And I'm just beating you up on one thing, right? How many other places do we fail, right? But we need to look with fairness and equity towards all people. We're going to skip that, and here's what we do. We finish with this. The way that you live your life and you live out the gospel, as the music team comes up, we're going to sing about how good the Father is, but as we see how the Father loves us, we are able, 
as the first church did, see God change violent and tyrannical characters, right? Of such, maybe you were too. Maybe you were once far from Christ, right? But the gospel got in there, and you gave up your old and harsh ways. How does that happen? By us living out the gospel in our families, in our workplaces, and with everybody in our household, we can see lives changed. This is why Paul was not concerned about the institution and the economic forum of slavery, because it took 250 years and it was turned over. How was it turned over? By people believing the gospel. Christianity brought down the Roman Empire. Okay, It happens when the heart is changed. Allow the gospel to change your heart, and you'll see how your families begin to change. So this whole text here, it's just really a call to you to believe the gospel. And if you've never believed in the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ, I would welcome you to examine the claims of Christ. We'll have elders up here today, and you can learn how Christ can change your life, can change your family, can change your workplace, change how you have happiness in this life or a lack of happiness. Christ offers to us everything, and he offers to us the greatest gift of all, a relationship with the most perfect Father, our Father God. Amen. Let's sing to his glory and let's stand.